This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. Value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. Over the weekend, there were two major events. One was the G7 summit in Biarritz. The other one was the Jackson Hole meeting of central bankers here to talk about those things very briefly, but more of the inverted yield curve and the potential for recession is Jason Borbora Sheen, who is a portfolio manager at Investec Asset Management in London. These things almost seem like a bit of a sideshow, uh, Jason, given the extraordinary state of the world's capital markets. Yes, um, I think I'd agree with that, certainly at least with regards to the G7 meeting. I'd put a little bit more importance on some of the noises coming out of Jackson Hole and more important still on the yield curve inversion. But I think what ideally we'd like to focus on is the utility of that for short-term decision-making, which I would say is not particularly high given the leads and lags involved between the impact at least from an economic perspective, uh, negatively post the yield curve inversion, and then also from a market perspective. And briefly, in that regard, there is a a fair degree of lag between when the yield curve inverts and then when you tend to see a peak in equity markets. And if we look at the prior seven episodes of yield curve inversion, they have all preceded a a peak in equity markets and and a potential um, inversion, but typically on average by around 11 months. And therefore, for short-term decision-making, it doesn't enlighten one um, significantly. Is it different this time? That's a phrase that has been, <laughs> that has, uh, littered uh, financial markets for quite a long time. This time, it's different. This time, the tech bubble is uh, not a tech bubble because it's different from 2000, all that sort of thing. But is, the, is it different this time? We've had a couple of yield curve inversions. One was at the end of last year, and now we're flirting with it. It keeps on going in and out of inverting but the two-year and the 10-year, and I'm talking about US instruments at the moment. But is this time different simply because of quantitative easing and the super low interest rates? So I think it's worth defining exactly what one is talking about here. So the yield curve, um, as people typically refer to it, is simply the difference in interest rates between that offered at a longer-term instrument and a shorter-term one. And the one which gathers the most attention given its historical accuracy, is the difference between the yield on a 10-year bond in the US and a two-year bond. And as you have alluded to, there are other ways you can look at yield curves, for example, using um, shorter-term interest rates. So the Fed like to look at one which concerns uh, three-month money rates and the expected three-month money rates at a future time. And many of those measures have inverted. And all that, I think, really tells you is something about shorter-term monetary policy and its impact on longer-term growth expectations. And therefore, when a yield curve inverts, it's saying that shorter-term rates are of such a magnitude that they might impair future growth and inflation expectations. In and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be a recession. But clearly, if you do have too tight monetary policy, that can be a contributory factor to recession. And then on your point about is this time different, the reason why I wouldn't be hasty to disregard the yield curve as a potential indicator of um, economic strife is that so many others in the past have tried to do so. So Mm -hmm. if we go back to, say, 2006, there's a fairly famous speech by Ben Bernanke, which explains why the yield curve's inversion at that point wasn't 
um, an accurate portention of there being recessionary difficulties, and we clearly can see how that ended. At the same time, in 2006, the European Central Bank did the same. If you go back to 2000, there was a piece by a, a Fed member, again, explaining why the inverted yield curve at that point wasn't uh, a good sign of a recession. And then if we go back to 1989, again, there was another piece uh, in the financial press regarding why then a, um, a, a worker at Solomon Brothers um, didn't believe that the, the yield curve would be a um, accurate predictor of recession. So I don't actually see that there's much point in trying to fight it. I think what, what matters is what you do with that information. And so it likely suggests that the outlook for future market returns is less positive than it once was. But it doesn't mean that one has to pull on, I think, the handbrake immediately. It does mean, I think, that you have to be a bit more circumspect about when other recessionary indicators then start to flash red, that perhaps things are are starting to get worse. But to be honest, there are not many which really scream recession currently. Yes, exactly. There's no inflation. The corporate results are are fairly good at the moment. Do you think that the talk, uh, which is promoted, obviously, by popular media, popular business media, is starting to become a self-fulfilling prophecy? In other words, they're saying, well, we've got an inverted yield curve, so therefore we're going into recession and people listen to this and they say, well, then I'll pull back from my equity purchases or my uh, new factory that I was going to be building in whatever jurisdiction you're in. Do you see what I mean? Uh, People are being talked into recession. Yeah, indeed. And I think that there is a risk of that, clearly. Um, If one looks at the the count-off searches for recession on Google, then they have spiked, um, which is something that, they, that you can sort of look at by going on the Google website. Um, but I think there are broader forces at, at play here in that there are clearly more pervasively negative sentiment in markets. So you can see that um, investment or investors' allocation towards money market funds has increased um, at the expense of, it would seem, riskier assets such as equities. And whilst that can be self-fulfilling, so there's less capital flowing into equity markets, and then that causes price pressures. It can also mean that actually there's too much um, pessimism in the short term. And I think the difficulty is how one manages that. So in our portfolios, what we're trying to do is maintain a degree of optionality, which is to say it does seem as though data is fairly poor at the moment. Um, if, we, if we look at sort of ex-US data particularly, it does seem as though indicators such as the yield curve are, are flashing red and that one should be alert to them. But equally, there is that abundance of pessimism. And to maintain the potential to participate in upside, one of the strategies that we have in place is owning call options. And they are fairly cheap at the moment, given the subdued level of volatility, which is a key input into call option pricing. Yes, And that allows us to run a base level of low risk, but with the ability to participate if markets do move higher. And I think one of the other things which is kind of pushing and pulling at the moment is the reaction of monetary policy. So I think on the the two sides of this, you have the factors which are making the Federal Reserve um, more hesitant about easing rates, which I think are not wanting to appear to be appeasing the uh, president of the US. Also, the fact that US growth itself hasn't particularly slowed that much and that equities are close to their their all-time highs. And I think that is this sort of um, pull factor as to why they're not wanting to move rates. The push factor as to why they might want to decrease rates are that it's clearly dangerous to wait too long, uh, given the leading lag time between policy impacting on the economy and when you make that decision to reduce interest rates. 
the fact that actually through their own research, they suggest that by cutting rates um, more aggressively than the market anticipates, there's a greater impact um, from a signaling perspective in terms of the, the sort of bang for buck that you get out of that rate move. And then also clearly this fact that actually U.S. Um, strength can be harmed by ex-U.S. weakness and you import that poor data back into the U.S. And I think those factors are making it particularly difficult. That, that U.S. president pressure is a particular one, I think, which is unique to this uh, environment. Do you think they are yielding to that pressure? Do you honestly think so? Or do you think they're saying to themselves, yes, we understand that people think we are, but on the other hand, we're acting autonomously. We are, we are on our own here and we're not listening to the noise that is bombarding us every single day. So my personal opinion on this is that if they didn't have the pressure of the president, they actually would be acting in a more decisive way. I think they would have perhaps more been more ready to consider a 50 basis point cut at the prior meeting than they would appear to. And I think they also then wouldn't necessarily have had to couch it in a mid-cycle fashion, which is what they did. Um, I mean, it's interesting. You now have more recently and may have seen the opinion piece from uh, ex-New York Fed um, uh, Dudley in Bloomberg yesterday, yes. in which he was basically basically saying, you know, they shouldn't, the Fed shouldn't react at all to the president as it's enabling him to conduct his trade war and effectively saying, actually, the decision of the 2020 election in the US is within the purview of the Fed. And therefore, if they can influence that result by um, not assisting him in his trade war, they should do so. And I think that's a very sort of dangerous, almost um, encroachment into politics from the Fed. And I wouldn't say they're a completely apolitical institution, but it is making this whole decision-making process very clouded. Whereas if they were able, I think, to operate independently in a true fashion, then they would be more decisive than they have been. The volatility in the market, this is my final question, by the way, the volatility in the market is almost unprecedented. I mean, it's 150 points up on the Dow one day, 280 points down on the next, and it just goes on and on. And it looks very, very messy at the top of what has been a very, very long and very, very lucrative for investors anyway, a bull market. Does this tell you that there are people positioning themselves for something quite different? I'm not actually sure that volatility is incredibly elevated. Um, there's a number of different ways you can measure it. So I think what you're alluding to is the fact that actually, at least from the beginning of August, all we've had is price reversals. So the market goes up by 1% one day and falls by 1% the next. Yes. Um, in terms of implied volatility, which one can look at through the VIX index, which is a measure of volatility through options. And again, that's why I was alluding to call options at the start of our conversation. That hasn't increased particularly. So it's sitting at about 18 which is above the average of the last couple of years, but not elevated relative to history. I do think one of the things which is potentially true of the market, though, um, given the, train, the change in structure of it, so the fact that we have more passive investment, the fact that a lot of the intermediation from a trading perspective is done via high-frequency or electronic trading, means that it is susceptible to these very sudden moves. And that's true of the last you know, six, seven years in which we've had these flash crashes whereby markets move very suddenly, very steeply. And I think that's probably a risk still. And again, I think optionality can help you in that kind of context. Jason, thanks so much for your insight. That's Jason Borborashin, Portfolio Manager at Investec Asset Management in London. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.